Welcome back to Freud in Focus with your hosts, Tom DeRose and me, Jamie Brewers. Thanks again to all of you at home for joining us for the second episode of our deep dive into Freud's 1919 paper on the uncanny. We have so much that we want to get through this week, so there's a little recap of part one before we carry on. So last time we were looking at how Freud chose to introduce the uncanny, a theory rooted in aesthetics, which focused on qualities of feeling, stemming mostly from horror, repulsion, and dread. Freud split the paper into two methods to understand his theory. The first method was a linguistic analysis of the term das Unheimlich, the original German word for the uncanny, and in various translations to other languages and their uses. We mentioned last time that we'd be looking at how Freud gathered data to support his argument, and he chooses some very interesting examples. We also mentioned a paper last time called On the Psychology of the Uncanny, written by the German psychiatrist Ernst Jentsch. In the paper, Jentsch references a tale by the 19th century author E.T.A. Hoffmann called The Sandman, and he focuses on a character called Olympia, who's something like a puppet or an automaton. She simulates a living thing, but she's in fact an inanimate object. And this intrigues Freud, so he also discusses it in his paper. But tell us, Tom, who was Hoffman and what happens in The Sandman? Well, Hoffman was really quite a remarkable individual, one of the icons of German Romanticism. He became famous for his novels and novellas and really invented a style all of his own. We speak, don't we, of a work being Hoffmanesque in the same way that we might speak of a Kafkaesque style. He was also a composer and an extremely influential music critic. His famous review of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, published in 1810, and his description of that work in terms of the sublime, created a new narrative of Romantic music theory, which distinguished itself from classical music that dealt with the beautiful. Indeed, for Hoffman, music was the highest art, to which all others aspired. It was a link to the absolute. But despite this devotion to the lofty and sublime realm of music, he also writes these wonderfully gothic and fantastical tales, dealing with states of altered consciousness, blurred identities and the fragmentation of reality. We really read him now, partly through Freud's influence, of course, as the poet of the uncanny. Now, the story that Freud will devote so much time to analysing is, as you said, the Sandman, which is narrated through a series of letters that describe the unfortunate history of the hero of the tale, as it were, called Nathaniel. Nathaniel's tribulations begin with an encounter with a tradesman who is selling barometers, which sends him into a state of terror. Now, this encounter had awoken an old memory from his childhood involving the Sandman, a figure from folklore who throws handfuls of sand into the eyes of children who don't go to bed so that their eyes jump out of their heads, bleeding. He then puts the eyes in a sack 
and carries them off to the half-moon to feed his children. For Nathaniel, this cautionary children's tale seems to have taken on an aspect of reality, leading to the murder of his father when he was young, and his subsequent haunting by the figure of the Sandman, represented by the lawyer Coppola, who appears at intervals throughout his life and eventually drives him to madness and suicide. If it sounds complex, then that's because it is. But it is certainly conducive of the uncanny effect. Jentsch puts this effect down to uncertainty, and he uses the figure of the Dole Olympia that you mentioned, Jamie, as an example of this uncertainty. Nathaniel is convinced that she is alive, but perhaps she is dead. Freud, of course, is unconvinced by this explanation. So, Jentsch reads Hoffman's Sandman very different to how Freud reads it. And for Jentsch, the focus is on the idea of this uncertainty of feeling, this unsettling notion that something could be human, but not human, possibly alive, possibly inanimate, or even dead. And examples of this which tend to creep you know, most people out are things like puppets or life like mannequins or dolls. But Freud challenges this uh, a bit, suggesting that the most important part of the story isn't actually the uncertainty of the feeling, and as you said, Tom, it's the theme of the Sandman himself, who tears out children's eyes. So he then goes on and compares this to the Greek tragedy of Oedipus, whom, you know, upon realizing he's killed his father and married his mother, gouges out his own eyes. Now, Freud's groundbreaking theory of the Oedipus complex is equal to his theory of the castration complex. And so, I guess by that explanation, Hoffman's Sandman is actually the formidable castrator, as he threatens to remove children's eyes. But I'll hand that over to you now, as I, I, I think you'll have more to say about it, I'm sure. I mean, how can you not? <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. How can I not? But um, before I do that, actually... um. What I like to do, first of all, is just to think a little bit about how Freud gets to this interpretation. So you'll remember that we talked last week about the analyst's practice of free-floating attention, like how we can listen to a monologue or indeed read a text by allowing the appearance of certain elements to arise and connect, kind of to associate with each other so that they then produce an alternative narrative, one which had been hidden or perhaps repressed beneath the surface meaning. Well, Freud applies this technique in his retelling of the Hoffman story. It's a kind of psychoanalyst's edit, if you will. I would say a director's cut, but perhaps that's an unfortunate phrase in the circumstances. What Freud does here is to focus our attention on the theme that really represents the hidden core of the story. And that theme, as you mentioned, centres around the eyes. Freud's analysis is, is like a paradigm of the activity and indeed the pleasure that is proper to the psychoanalyst. In The Moses of Michelangelo from 1914, he had described the fact that artworks often have a strong effect on him but that he only really experiences pleasure 
when he's able to explain to himself what this effect is due to. And the resistance to the potential pleasure on offer from an unexplained entity is, in his words, rationalistic, or indeed, properly analytic. So Freud's pleasurable discovery of the source of the uncanny feeling in the Sandman, the hidden core of the story, is the theme of the eyes, which he explains is related to the anxiety belonging to the castration complex of childhood. To explain this connection, Freud draws on the familiar psychoanalytic interpretation of the Oedipus myth, where the self-blinding of Oedipus was a mitigated form of the punishment of castration. He also refers to the study of dreams, fantasies and myths, which have established the link between going blind and being castrated, along with evidence from his analysis of neurotic patients. Having discovered the key to the code of Hoffman's Sandman, Freud, and indeed the reader, can enjoy the pleasure related to the unravelling of a seemingly chaotic and hermetic mystery. In fact, Freud offers us a psychoanalytic reconstruction of the material that Hoffman had so skillfully and imaginatively assembled through the narrative techniques of metaphor and metonymy, which are equivalent to the condensation and displacement of the dream work. Now, the, the long footnote on page 232 is unfortunately too detailed and elaborate for us to go into now, but I would recommend our listeners to have a good read of it if they're interested in the traces of Oedipus in Hoffman's text. Hoffman is so important to the uncanny that he's mentioned again for his novel The Devil's Elixir. Now, Freud deduces that what emerges in his tales is this phenomenon of the double, better known, I guess to most of us, as the doppelganger. And at this point, Freud looks to the theoretical framework around the double devised by Otto Rank in 1914. Rank's essay is, is quite interesting, albeit a little bit dry in parts, but uh, I do recommend reading it if you're interested in the subject, because he analyzes the double with regard to twins, mirrors, shadows, spirits, and ghosts. Um, but I think probably one of the most engaging parts of his text is when he starts to look at the double in different cultures and what this signifies in different cultures. So Freud looks to Rank's theory to suggest that the double can evoke the feeling of uncanniness. But can you tell us, you know, how does Freud exactly explain the uncanniness of the double psychoanalytically? Right. Well, the theme of the double is, is probably one of the first things, isn't it, that comes to mind when we begin to think about the uncanny. And of course, it's also a prevalent concern in the German Romantic tradition. We might think of Schubert's haunting setting of Heine's poem Der Doppelganger from his song cycle Schwanergesang. But as you say, it's Hoffman again whom Freud uses to introduce the theme of the double, and particularly this novel, The Devil's Elixirs, the uncanny effect of which is, according to Freud, almost exclusively caused 
by the representation of the theme of the double. Now, what Rank is able to discover in his treatment is the fact that the double was originally an insurance policy against the destruction of the ego, an energetic denial of the power of death. The double, then, has its origin in the immortal soul. It springs from the soil of unbounded self-love and primary narcissism, which Freud argues dominates the mind of children and, as he puts it, primitive man. Now, in Totem and Taboo, which was published in 1913, Freud had set out the theory that the development of the human species, or phylogeny, is replicated in the development of the human individual, or ontogeny. In applying this logic to the theme of the uncanny, he argues that the double represents the reappearance of a phenomenon from an early stage of development, or something that leads back to what is known of old and long familiar. When the gods of a previous era return, they return as demons. So the double, which had originally represented an insurance of immortality, becomes, in Freud's words, the uncanny harbinger of death. It's a similar logic that Freud adopts in his famous footnote in Civilization and Its Discontents, in which he describes the repulsion that now accompanies the olfactory sense that had once been so crucial for human beings. Freud also offers a metapsychological explanation of the continued relevance of the double. Its influence is reactivated in a later stage of the ego's development, as a critical agency develops out of the ego and stands over against the rest of the ego. Freud is, is really describing here a kind of proto-superego. Now, in pathological cases of delusions of being watched, this agency can, Freud says, become dissociated from the ego, and thus the old idea of the double can be invested with renewed potency, as the act of self-observation can take on sinister and disturbing overturns. But it's really the fact that it represents the return of something that is related to a stage of development that should have been long since surmounted that gives the double its uncanny aspect. So it's that reappearance of something known of old and familiar. Right, exactly. You know, something known of old and familiar. So I guess the best way to help us understand it is by using lived experiences. And that's exactly what Freud does you know he he recalls a period where he's walking through a, an italian town that's totally unknown to him and he's wandering through these meandering streets but after a long time of getting lost in this you know in this foreign town he finds himself back at exactly the same piazza that he started at and he describes this feeling as recalling the sense of helplessness like in some dreamlike states now, another example of this involuntary repetition or, or fate 
occurs when he realizes he's seeing the number 62 everywhere. Addresses, hotel rooms, train compartments, which was incidentally his age at the time of writing it as well. And he becomes superstitious around this number. It's a totally meaningless number otherwise. Um, but he found himself prescribing meaning to these chance events, which so many of us do as well where the number 62 is present. So he begins this conversation around uncanniness based upon experiences from his own life. Yeah, I mean, I, I think this is such an interesting passage, really. I mean, in fact, it's a passage that, that kind of really gets to the heart of the psychoanalytic endeavour. What distinguishes psychoanalysis in a way from psychology more generally? I'd like to actually read the start of this passage, if I may, and think quite closely about the language that Freud uses. And, and this is from uh, page uh, 236, volume 17 of the Standard Edition, if, you, if you'd like to follow along. So Freud writes, The factor of the repetition of the same thing will perhaps not appeal to everyone as a source of uncanny feeling. From what I have observed, this phenomenon does undoubtedly, subject to certain conditions and combined with certain circumstances, arouse an uncanny feeling, which, furthermore, recalls the sense of helplessness experienced in some dream states. As I was walking one hot summer afternoon through the deserted streets of a provincial town in Italy, which was unknown to me, I found myself in a quarter of whose character I could not long remain in doubt. Nothing but painted women were to be seen at the windows of the small houses, and I hastened to leave the narrow street at the next turning. But after having wandered about for a time without inquiring my way, I suddenly found myself back in the same street, where my presence was now beginning to excite attention. I hurried away once more, only to arrive by another detour at the same place yet a third time. Now, however, a feeling overcame me which I can only describe as uncanny, and I was glad enough to find myself back at the piazza I had left a short while before, without any further voyages of discovery. Now, Freud starts this passage, doesn't he, with phenomena that seem to confound logic, the repetition of the same thing. Not everyone, he says, will be convinced of the importance of such phenomena. But taken together with other circumstances, they leave us with a sense that's kind of the helplessness, a sense like the help helplessness that's experienced in some dream states. Now, dreams are, of course, the starting point of psychoanalysis. It's where it all begins, really. And it also begins, quite crucially, with confession. With the scientist offering himself to observation. It's Freud's own dreams which make up the majority of the cases that he offers for analysis in interpretation of dreams. So the scientist himself enters the field of scientific data. And the language here really conveys the brilliance of Freud the writer, I think. As I was walking one hot summer afternoon 
You know, it, it has the ring of a passage from something like Rousseau's Reveries of a Solitary Walker. But it also introduces that sense of wonder, I think, which, according to Socrates, is the beginning of all philosophical endeavour. It's the wonder and the curiosity that the human condition provokes that really sets psychoanalysis going, just as much as the imperative to alleviate human suffering. And then we have the scene of sexuality, you know, the quarter that could leave no doubt as to its character, with painted women at the windows of small houses, somehow echoing the scene of sexuality to which Freud's hysterics, his early patients, kept involuntarily returning, and indeed to where Freud himself keeps returning, attempting to find his way out of the labyrinth of the symptom. And finally, the reference to the voyages of discovery reminds us of the fact that Freud described himself in a letter to Fleece, not as a man of science, but as a conquistador. So it's almost as if, in this one paragraph, Freud has managed to plot the very coordinates of psychoanalysis itself. So we've had Freud as a philologist, as a literary theorist, you know, Hoffman dominates the opening pages of part two. But this passage is really where Freud himself enters the stage. And it's telling that this more personal, more reflective passage leads us to a reference to Beyond the Pleasure Principle. Now, if you were with us for our first podcast series, you'll remember just how personal a text that was for Freud. We're left here with the notion that the compulsion to repeat is in fact inherent in the very instincts themselves, and that the, the uncanny effect can also be produced by anything that reminds us of this inner compulsion to repeat. So having discussed the specific examples of the uncanny with reference to the compulsion to repeat and omnipotence of thought, Freud begins to offer a hypothesis. Now, if you want to read along at home, this is from page 241 of the Standard Edition. He says, At this point, I will put forward two considerations, which I think contain the gist of this short study. In the first place, if psychoanalytic theory is correct in maintaining that every affect belonging to an emotional impulse, whatever its kind, is transformed, if it is repressed, into anxiety, then among instances of frightening things, there must be one class in which the frightening element can be shown to be something repressed, which recurs. This class of frightening things would then constitute the uncanny, and it must be a matter of indifference whether what is uncanny was itself originally frightening or whether it carried some other effect. In the second place, if this is indeed the secret nature of the uncanny, we can understand why linguistic usage has extended das heimliche, or homely, into its opposite, das unheimliche, for this uncanny is in reality nothing new or alien, but something which is familiar, 
and old established in the mind, and which has become alienated from it only through the process of repression. This reference to the factor of repression enables us, furthermore, to understand Schelling's definition of the uncanny as something which ought to have remained hidden but has come to light. So now we have the repressed which recurs, and that really offers the key to understanding Schelling's definition that he wanted to underline, underline last week. Something that is unconscious ought to have remained hidden but has come to light. Well, exactly, you know, and, and, and if we think of this in terms of our previous series, in which we discussed beyond the pleasure principle, we, we talked about the scientific method, didn't we? And, and Freud is really putting that into practice here, I think. The first stage is the gathering of data, you know, all of these examples of instances of the uncanny. Then we have the establishment of an hypothesis. So the uncanny is caused by the recurrence of the repressed. And then the, the hypothesis must be tested. So does this hypothesis adequately account for further instances of the uncanny? Well, it certainly helps to explain Schelling's definition that something has come to light that ought to have remained hidden. And also the notion that the homely can become its opposite the unhomely. The first test of this hypothesis comes in a discussion on the uncanny quality of the dead, of our attitude to spirits and ghosts. Our emotional attitude to death has, Freud suggests, changed very little since the earliest times. Death maintains such a strong emotional reaction for us and it has also proved to be resistant to scientific analysis. Although we all read in textbooks that, in Freud's words, man is mortal, no one really grasps it, and our unconscious is, as Freud writes, in a state where it has as little use now as it ever had for the idea of its own mortality. So we're divided subjects, really, aren't we? On a conscious level, we read in our textbooks that we will all die, but on an unconscious level, the fact of mortality is rejected. Even some scientists, some of the most penetrating minds of his day, you know, Freud says, they've suggested that contact with the souls of the departed might actually be possible. This whole section really reminds me of someone like Arthur Conan Doyle, you know, who was fascinated by spiritualism, believed in the existence of fairies, whilst at the same time his detective Sherlock Holmes is espousing the qualities of analysis and deduction. Indeed, Freud will go on to suggest that psychoanalysis itself may appear as uncanny. The psychoanalytic cure is one which seeks to lay bare hidden forces, so that what should have remained hidden can be brought to light. So in a way, psychoanalysis is the profession par excellence of the uncanny. Now Freud goes on to catalogue these instances of the uncanny, all of which conform to his hypothesis. He writes that 
We have now only a few further remarks to add. For animism, magic and sorcery, the omnipotence of thoughts, man's attitude to death, involuntary repetition and the castration complex comprise practically all the factors which turn something frightening into something uncanny. His final example is taken from his work with neurotic men, who often have a horror of the female genitals, which he says offers a beautiful confirmation of his theory of the uncanny. For the place that was originally the home of all human beings now takes on the aspect of the unhomely. Well, this example concludes Freud's list of instances of the uncanny. And I think when you initially pick up this paper, it's so so easy to be skeptical at first with his very dense linguistic analyses. But this second part starts to bring the uncanny to life. From literature, folk tales, his own life, clinical examples, and, and metapsychology, there was so much material that we wanted to cover today. So thanks for sticking with us until the end. Next week, we'll be looking at part three, the final part of Freud's Uncanny. Thanks for joining Tom DeRose and me, Jamie Ruers, for this episode, part two of Freud's 1919 paper, The Uncanny. And a huge thanks to our producer, Carolina Heller. We'll see you next time.